Hey, everybody, welcome to Show Me the Meaning Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Show me the meaning! My name is Jared, and I'm joined here with the classic three. We've got Ryan. Hey, film fans. And Austin. Hello, lovers. Oh. <laughs> so today we're covering uh, the 2000 film Battle Royale, directed by Kinji Fukasaku, starring Tatsuya Fujiwara, Aki Maeda, and Takeshi Kitano. Fuck yeah. Um, before we move on, I just want to issue a quick correction. Last week, when we were talking about The Incredibles 2, I accidentally said Helen Hunt instead of Holly Hunter. And confession, I always fuck that up. Like, <laughs> I know. always. I, know you I, 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 I mean, they both have the same initials. They both have Hunt. Come on, man. It's confusing. Yeah, but Holly Hunter is, I mean, I like me some Helen Hunt, but Holly Hunter has the most Superior. amazing. Oh, she, she's a fucking queen of queens in, in the world, you know? Which is the one in Crash? Oh, that's Holly Hunter. Oh, okay, it is. Well, yeah. Who is Helen Hunt then? Helen Twister. Hunt's the one in it, as good as it gets in Twister and Mad About okay. You. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like Holly right. Hunter's broadcast. I, I have like a glitch in my brain with these two people. Like yeah. I can't, I can't separate them. Holly Hunter won an Academy Award, right? Broadcast News, I'm pretty sure. Was it for Broadcast News? Yeah. And then Helen Hunt. I mean, Helen Hunt's great. She but... won for as good as it gets. Yeah. That. Yeah. All right, cool. So before we uh, get to talking about this movie, I want to talk about how we decided to do this movie. So this movie was a Patreon poll winner. So first I want to go through the other movies that were in this poll and reveal how many votes each one got. <laughs> so um, let's start with the winner, Battle Royale, Hell yeah. with 66 votes. Booyah. The next one, Walkabout, the Nicholas Rogue movie. Wow. So this is basically just uh, Siobhan, who runs our social media, asked me, what movies would you like to talk about? Or And so I just listed a couple off the top of my head, and she get, did a Patreon poll. And, not uh, that we don't like to talk about the other movies. It's just like the hardcore. These are the, 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 deep, the deep cuts. cuts. The deep cuts. So Walkabout got seven votes. <laughs> Whoa. That's second place? No, no, no. It's not. I'm not doing this in order. Oh, okay. Next one is <laughs> Next one is Antichrist. Hell got yeah. 20 oh, votes. Nice. Yeah. You sick fucks. Next one was In the Mood for Love, which is the one we almost did today, and that got 11 votes. So this is actually second place. This is going to surprise you with 29 votes. Stalker. Oh. The Tarkovsky movie? The Tarkovsky what? movie. 29 votes. I mean, they all like got wrecked by Battle Royale. But, right. And then the last place one, which is a movie that I think I am probably the only person who likes, is... Michael, not the John Travolta one, though. <laughs> the, the pedophile the Aust- drama. The Austrian pedophile, very, very dry comedy. Yes. Uh, have you seen that, Austin? No. What, I, I've seen the John Travolta one. <laughs> no, fuck that movie. This is uh, this movie is a, a horrific subject matter, brilliant execution. Okay. But anyway, we're here to talk about Battle Royale. So thank you, patrons at WisecrackPlus.com for giving us your preferences so here we are discussing the movie you want us to discuss battle royale so let's get first impressions i already know what ryan thinks about this movie so we're going to start with austin (laughs) austin tell us about this movie you know what this is the first time i've seen this movie Ah. i know i had never seen it before i've heard so much about it um i know that people talk about how the hunger games is basically a ripoff of this mixed with the lottery but i had never actually seen it but but i feel like i kind of got it because i've read about it and you know, there's so many kind of deep takes on how it's a satire about Japanese economy and um, kind of the fallout of the the lost decade uh, in the 90s and all of the various social ills that that caused. So I felt like I feel like I I knew it and I feel like there was so much. Oh, my God, this movie's amazing around it that I kind of thought that I had seen it, but I really had never seen it. And it is pretty fucking awesome, I have to say. Um, so the only gripe that I have is, I don't know if I should say it now or if I should say it later, but I just feel like a lot of these people were pussies and that you need to just, it's a shitty situation, but bro, you just got to fucking go for it, you know? You got to like, nut up, man. You have no humanity, Austin. Not in this situation. Humanity is stripped from, you got to survive, man. God. We should definitely go around and talk about what our game plan would be if we were okay. Put in this yeah, situation. let's make sure to do that. Yeah, and 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 whether or not you think you'd be good. Because <laughs> I'll be honest, I think I'd be really good. And maybe this is like my deep inner psychopath coming out, but I mm. feel like I would be okay. Because well, okay. you know, it all depends here, 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 on the weapon that you get, right? No, I mean, that, that, can, well, that is a no. huge I'd thing. Scrap. I mean, if you get helps, a weapon, if if you get an umbrella versus an AK, you know, the, I would rather get the AK. I don't know about you. I'd go full Rambo. I'd make weapons out of sticks and booby traps and shit like that. 
And I would fucking oh, I, shoot you point blank with a fucking AK. You wouldn't stand a chance. I mean, I, I'd hide to the end and... You can't, you can't hide because they keep making the different, like, well, emergency right. Yeah, zones. but then you just go to the other one, but then you, and then you... Well, then you're, you're, pe- you're vulnerable every you time you're moving. You let people whittle, uh, whittle themselves down, you know, you shoot a couple, you take the people you can. Either way, here's the thing, I would totally win, okay? I would win, there's no doubt about it, but I do think that I would end up killing myself. I I don't think, I don't want to fucking play were, their stupid, were bet- their sick game. You wouldn't game. have to worry about that, because I'd win, and I'd kill you, so you don't have to worry about I, that. I, I would kill you, but before that, I would kill myself. If I were a betting man, and I know, I know Ryan, I know Ryan a lot better than I know Austin, but I would put my money on Ryan. Thank you, Jared. Fuck yeah. Because Ryan is a man who takes <laughs> games very seriously. <laughs> <laughs> and he also has, like, an athleticism that kind of transcends his actual body. Like, he just kind of can put himself in this mental state where, like, he doesn't know that he's tired. You know, like, he can yeah. just keep going. Willpower, baby. Yeah. That's uh, the life anyway, of an editor, so... right? Where you stay up for four days straight working. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Anyway, Ryan, give it to us. I mean, this is one of the best movies ever made. Period. You wow. know, like I, uh, uh, I saw it when 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 it came out. You know, I think Quentin Tarantino had been talking it up. You know, so I went and watched it, and yeah, it really showed me what what at a very early age what movies could do, and like the truly epic scope of this movie is amazing. It has 40 fucking characters, you know, yeah. plus that you get moments with, you know, that you're following, you know. And yeah, the, that was cool. It, it, you really get in into each of their dynamics, you know, and it's amazing. And and, and it's it's amazing because it's, it's about kids, you know, so I really related at the time. You know, it's about real kid relationships, and I think the acting's great, but also they're put into this extraordinary situation that I like was, I was like I was there the whole time. I was like, you know, even though it's a two and a half hour movie or two hours, 10 minute movie, I was like thinking about me being in this situation the entire time. I never get bored. And then, of course, the effects are amazing. And uh, yeah, it's just this melodramatic, gory fucking satire, like you said, Austin, that I think transcends cinema and is amazing. But mm. Japanese comedy speaks to you. I mean, I know you, I know your work, I know the mm-hmm. things you like. Japanese comedy is something that you really like. Oh, yeah, right? absolutely. And, and, and it's also, I, and I also the, the comedic, the, the tone of this movie is pretty unique. Yeah, yeah, I didn't touch on that really, but right, it, it is, it's all over the place, which, it, like I said, you know, like one of the best movies ever, you know, you laugh, you cry, you fucking are scared, you're like grossed out, you're, you know, it's interesting. This movie takes you to all those uh, emotions, and only I don't see that in American cinema very often. You know, it's like Japanese. Mm-hmm. This totally what the fuck batshit insane Japanese jo- subgenre basically is what, definitely the sweet spot for me in terms of how much I like movies. Yeah, those are all the reasons I like the movie too. I think that uh, tonally the movie is really special. I think it's very funny, um, and I, yeah, I, I guess like there are times where you do feel like a genuine empathetic connection with especially the main characters and you really root for them and you want them to live but then at other times uh though it's these things are presented through this kind of slightly sarcastic wry humor and you're just kind of laughing the whole thing off at the same time there's also just the spectacle element of it that it's just balls to the wall pretty awesome i love some of the high school jokes you know just the fact that we have like the caddy girl click who you know their cattiness makes them turn on each other and they all kill each other some of those things are awesome um i love the i think my favorite scene is when the a girl kills the nerd and he says go just go and she's like what and he's like i've always had a crush on you and she's like what the fuck you never said anything that really touched me too i remember watching that moment in high school being like god there's some girls that if i was dying right now i'd be pissed that i didn't say that i had a crush on them you know or wouldn't you be pissed if there was a girl that you kind of liked and you saw her in this game and you killed her and then she said oh ryan i always liked you and you were like well fuck i always liked you too man <laughs> well there's only one winner <laughs> jared oh, okay so. so it's like at that point it's like well it's it, so you we, would have, you would no have zero alliances throughout the whole thing hell no you can't have an alliance in this game not even a strategic alliance how is there a strategic alliance well, we see that you know some it, people it, start off with groups, and then that's you my stay one in the group until things until people whittle down, and then once things start go start, the the number starts getting lower. Then you 
start turning on your My group. one complaint about this movie, and it's a very small one, but it, I wish there was a scene where at least just one group of kids talked about that, where it's like, okay, look, we're, we're here now, but when it gets down to it, you know, every man for himself. Because you kind of don't really know where their head's at sometimes because they're banding together, but like they said at the beginning, after three days, everyone's heads blows up. And they never kind of... Like, it's kind of like, what was their game plan being in those groups, some of them, you know? They don't really explain that. Well, some of them are actually trying to escape, and they think that yeah. they can break the and system. And those people I get more than the other people that are just kind of up in the in the tower, you know, picking people off. Yeah, I don't know. I think for some people, the prospect of dying is scary, but the prospect of, you know, being alone is probably just as scary. Yeah, but you scary. got three days. I mean, yeah. I mean, I get it. They're kids. I mean, yeah, and would you rather die alone or die with your friends if you feel hopeless that you're not going to win i'd rather i guess die with friends i guess <laughs> That's, i'd rather not die too i'd kill yeah i mean you basically got to either choose i'm going to kill myself or kill my friends right now you know no right. i think i think i think the correct answer to this is exactly what you guys are saying you strategize strategically but then you kind of say hey listen if it gets down to the final three of us we have to agree that we're going to do this like we're going to meet at a point and then we're all going to run away and then we just got to do our thing i would not do, t trust that yeah exactly like i, I wouldn't would, go to the point because i'm afraid I, oh man who austin yeah, came up with this I idea i wouldn't even want to have that like my this is the prisoner's like, dilemma my friends gonna they're gonna they're gonna preemptively take <laughs> me out you know you're all you're you know? Yeah, this is game. This is game theory stuff, right? You got to yeah. strategize. Go What's solo. the other person going to do? Um, but see, but I think you also got to worry. You got to plot. I mean, I think the 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 noble goal is to plot how you can circumvent the game so you don't have to kill anybody. I mean, that's that's the noble goal, right? Yeah. If, well, if you're... Let's see how that good that turned out for everybody. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, right. bro. I we thought, didn't even. I thought I thought we, you wanted we didn't to even... break down the system, Austin. You're gonna let I mean, the system dictate that you have to kill your other people. It depends on what mood I'm in, man. If it if it comes down, push comes to shove, and you got to start picking people off, I'll go full Rambo. But at first, I'm gonna strategize. But I feel like instead of full Rambo, it's like it's full Zuckerberg. <laughs> <laughs> He's got to stab your friends in the back. Fuck them. When a gun is pointed in your face, you got to fucking you got to. It's either kill or be killed, right? I don't know. I guess, or kill yourself, which I think is the more uh, noble option. But uh, but to your point, Jared, about the the the, the comedy, um, I think that it's really. Uh, we didn't even do a recap yet. No, we're going to get into that. Uh, well, but but let, let, let Ryan finish. All I want to say yeah. is that Takeshi Kitano, who's the teacher, is obviously got to give a great shout out to him because I think the comedy element is grounded in his performance which is that amazing is, that, you know? is, that is my first talking point so i'm glad you brought that up okay. so, so let me get the recap out of <laughs> okay. the way and we'll start talking about takeshi katano all right so on to the recap okay so i'm gonna actually just read the title card here because it explains things very well at the dawn of the millennium the nation collapsed at 15 percent unemployment 10 million were out of work 800,000 students boycotted school the adults lost confidence and fearing the youth eventually passed the millennial education reform act aka the battle royale act students soya and nakagawa so just a note, I'm going to call him Soya instead of Nanahara, which is his surname, just to keep things different from Nakagawa, of Class 3B are on a field trip when they are gassed and brought before Mr. Katano, their previous teacher who had left school last year after getting stabbed by Soya's best friend, Nobu. Kitano explains that they are the new subjects of the BR Act and must kill each other on an island until one remains. Kitano kills Nobu, the games begin, and Suya vows to protect Nakagawa. One by one, the students of 3B betray, manipulate, and ultimately murder each other. Suya and Nakagawa are aided by a transfer student named Kawada, who reveals that he was the survivor of a previous game. Elsewhere, a group of nerds devise a plan to bring down the system and escape. Suya and Nakagawa get split up, and Suya wakes up in a lighthouse run by five girls whose cattiness gets all five of them killed. Suya, fueled by the memory of Nobu, reunites with Nakagawa. The nerds successfully hack the system, but not before being snuck up on and annihilated. Soon it's just Kawada, Suya, and Nakagawa remaining. Kawada announces that he's tricked Nakagawa and Suya and proceeds to shoot them. So Kawada wins and joins Katano in the classroom, when Suya and Nakagawa appear. Turns out Kawada only pretended to betray them. Kitano unveils a painting depicting Nakagawa as the sole survivor. He says she was always his favorite and Suya guns him down. But when the phone rings, he nonchalantly answers it and eats the last cookie before finally expiring. Kawada reflects on the love he lost from the first battle royale before peacefully dying on the way back to the shore. Now fugitives of the law, Suya and Nakagawa run forward into an uncertain future. End of movie. 
There are over 90,000 people missing at any time, and over half a million are reported missing every year. And that's just in the United States. I'm Mike Morford. And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case. Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts, and there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. Um, All right. So what Ryan brought up, I think, is a super astute point, talking about how Takeshi Kitano really does inform the tone of this movie. And, you know, when we're in our John Wick podcast, we talked about this kind of memification of actors, how actors... I think the easiest way to describe this is Takeshi Kitano is like the Bill Murray of Japan. This guy is so famous. If you guys don't know who he is, this guy is a total renaissance man. He started out as a comedian. Then he turned into a serious actor. Then he turned into an art house director, then turned to a Yakuza movie auteur with his outrage trilogy. Then he's a painter and now he's an author. This guy (laughs) And he's so famous. Have you guys, you guys remember Most Extreme Elimination Challenge? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Is he Vic or Kenny? He's, uh, I don't remember what the dubbed names are, but the original show was called Takeshi's Castle, which is Takeshi Katana. It's Vic and then Kenny Blankenship. I guess he's Vic. He's the one in the blue, not the one in the red. Anyway, I love that show. So, interestingly, I feel like it surprises me on some level to hear that this movie has such unanimous love among Westerners because I feel like if you don't know who Takeshi Kitano is, it, you're not going to get it on a level as like imagine if you didn't know who Bill Murray was and you lived in like Nigeria or something and you watched uh, Space Jam or um, <laughs> that's or, a funny example. <laughs> well, you know, because at the end of Space Jam, Bill, I mean, look, Takeshi oh, Kitano, right, right. His, his character's name is Kitano. He is playing himself. You know, it's funny because it's Takeshi Kitano playing this guy. So at the end of Space Jam, Bill Murray comes in and he just plays Bill Murray. Similar in Zombieland, Bill Murray plays Bill Murray. And then there's that that thing in, what was it, Parks and Rec, where Bill Murray has this, like, ironic presence. He plays this dead guy. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So, and... and, He's uh, in a casket, I think. And, like, the idea that this high school teacher went from high school teacher one year to bossing the military around in a tracksuit the next year this doesn't make any sense but if you were kind of in on the like cultural joke of oh it's Takeshi Kitano doing this that's where it makes sense and how does that make sense though just because it's it's absurd right it's like it's because it's absurd yeah I mean it's a it's like an extra joke like imagine if Bill Murray was in it if 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 it was just some other guy who like a teacher the next year became like a, a political figurehead who uh, runs this pl- this act and bosses the military around it would be weird if it was just some regular guy but if it was bill murray there'd be that kind of like oh bill murray is playing this guy in a tracksuit who bosses around the military there's like that ironic hilarity to it and takeshi katano is ex- is exhibiting the same thing here i think but it is based on a book so the storyline of the teacher turned dude uh i would imagine is the same i mean i haven't read the book but so it's not something that just they made based sure. around Takeshi, right? So, I mean, maybe it was like a longer period of time or maybe there's I don't like, I still think that there's an element like whether or not, I mean, in the graphic novel, which I don't know, or the book, I don't know if the teacher's real name is Kitano. It could be, but there's no way that the one of the most famous entertainers, probably the most famous entertainer in Japan is cast as the guy Kitano. There's no way this isn't a wink to any Japanese audience member watching the movie. Oh no! I, yeah, see, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, I was so bummed. I, I'm always so bummed when I watch a foreign film that I am gonna miss out on so much of these subtle, intertextual or almost unconscious references that just are gonna fly and kind of wash over me, and I'm not gonna be able to, to really get them. That's one of the things that I always feel, and I'm, and I'm very aware of that as I'm watching a foreign film. I, for me, I, I, I take the opposite approach, where I love the fact that I don't exactly get, you know, everything going on, because to me, it just adds to. I don't know the craziness of it all, but uh, mm. but but Jared, you're not saying like like uh, um, that he's playing him and the 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 actor Katano is playing the actor Katano turn, turned into a teacher. No, I, but I right. am saying that he, like there his, is his presence heightens the, the situation. We, yeah, and, yeah, and, the way that we consume it. Like once again, Bill Murray isn't when Bill Murray plays himself in Space Jam. He's still acting. Yeah. 
but but but, he, but he's playing Bill Murray like okay. in the world of the in the universe yeah, of so Space maybe, Jam. So maybe yeah, you're right. So there's probably a difference in this one. Takeshi Kitano probably isn't playing the actor Takeshi Kitano, but. There is a wink to the audience. Yeah, he's going just on this here. figurehead, and it's just funny that it happens to be this comedian that everyone knows. But he plays it the way he plays it, like without knowing that, which I didn't really even kind of think about that uh, from, from most of the times I've ever watched it. But 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 even his performance is so weird, and you know, just the way he he yeah. plays this guy wandering around, like you said, in a track suit bossing the military around just randomly eating cookies he's fascinated with this one girl and falls in love and all of a sudden randomly shows unveils a painting that he painted for her at the end like yeah. what the fuck yeah like like it's so bizarre the i don't think you really it, you're right that it's an extra joke that probably adds to the consumption of it but yeah i didn't it, it, i'm not me, saying it's, it's a very idiosyncratic performance that that you're like yeah it's mysterious too like i'm not saying it doesn't work but i'm just saying that it is an uh, an extra layer that only yeah. people in a certain cultural context will get. Yeah, that's interesting. There's also the part where he brings an umbrella to Nakagawa, and in the context, it's hilarious because he gives her an umbrella during the whole charade, and he says, don't catch a cold, even though like right. she's fighting for her life and will very likely die. <laughs> now, during the scene, this is very funny, but then we later find out that he's obsessed with her, so it makes more sense, I guess. But even then, you could probably do something better than give her an umbrella if you want her to survive. Right. That yeah, machine gun really... would be nice. <laughs> it definitely would. And you, you, you might be getting to this point, too, but we should definitely talk about that at last phone call at the end after he's already been shot. Oh, yeah. Tell me about that. What does he say? I mean, what is your take on that? You know, it's like it's like basically he's been killed by the final person, mm -hmm. you know, and then uh, uh, and then the phone rings. He gets up like nothing ever happened. And he goes uh, and the, the conversation's like there's consequences to your hatred, I think, something mm. like that. And then he and then. He dies. You know, I, I didn't write that down. I, I honestly, I just read it as a Takeshi Kitano joke. Like, it's funny that it's just it's funny that he's seemingly bulletproof and he waits to die because, you know, it's a movie with like an A-list actor at the top and a bunch of kids, you know? Well, I mean, as, as absurd as this movie is, you know, it still plays it like it's real, even though, aside from, like, the absurd amount of blood and stuff. But, like, it's, nothing supernatural really happens until that moment where it right. totally breaks the reality of the scene and you're like, I, you're, you're supposed to say, what the fuck, I feel like. Well, but... that's to your point, that he is the crux of the tone, yeah. you know? If if he were serious, if he were like a an Arlie Ermy type badass militant general who's like, you know, all you kids, you better start killing each other. And he's, you know, if there was no level of like subtle comedy there, then I don't think the the movie would be as funny yeah, in general. It'd be more disturbing. It would be more disturbing. Way. Absolutely. Yeah, and I agree. It's not that Katano Kateshi Katano doesn't work by himself, but you know, imagine watching. Uh, Zombieland without knowing who Bill Murray is and you'd be like you just I mean it would still be funny but you wouldn't get the whole joke so the whole thing about this movie is the reason why they enacted the BR Act or the Battle Royale Act is because parents were afraid of their children and if you compare that to Hunger Games I do think there's an interesting comparison here with the Hunger Games the idea of the Battle Royale or whatever they call it in the Hunger Games is commenting on aristocracy and spectacle and how like uh you know the everyone in american society is so consumed by their need for spectacle that they'll you know literally have people kill each other kind of like roman coliseum shit in this movie i think that and i want to hear more about what austin says about the economic message but it's just about like the this generation of japanese like the generation gap between uh their grandparents and now it's like the biggest generation gap that they've dealt with in a long time. And it has to do with because after 1945, Japan changed rapidly and had accelerated developments, uh, cultural and industrial, when capitalism was introduced after the war. And so we have these super traditional parents and then these very modernized kids. And they just don't even know how to communicate. They're like aliens to each other. And so this is an interesting kind of hyperbolic manifestation of that uh, culture gap. But I want to hear more about what Austin's saying about the economic readings and stuff. Well, it's more just that in 91, Japan went through, a, you know, kind of a catastrophic recession or depression almost, uh, just a, a gnarly economic uh, hit. 
and unemployment rates were crazy high. It, I mean, they're still recovering from this this uh, this major economic recession that affected the economy, and so they call it the lost decade because from like ninety one to about two thousand ish, basically for the throughout the nineties, um, and then even in through the early two thousands, you know wage stagnation, unemployment, um, and then, of course, all of the incumbent results that come along with that, which are social strife, right? And so you get this division where you have this youth who are completely abandoned. And apparently there were some really notable cases of violence in the 90s as well among children that kind of were all tied to these economic problems. And really a lot of it is still connected to them kind of struggling to rebuild after being just decimated in World War II as well. So you've got decades and decades and decades of all of this stuff that's mounting up, and then it comes to a head in the 90s, which creates this radical stratification between the older generation who was you know, had a little bit of a modicum of, uh, of of progress after kind of rebuilding where you have this initial boom, this uh, initial economic boom. Um, and then once things kind of settle and you you fall into another economic pit, the kids were basically lost. It's kind of what you're seeing a little bit now, I think, in the United States where millennials or Gen Z even are kind of complaining to the boomers and to Gen Xers who just kind of don't seem to get what the complaints from the millennials and Gen Zers they, they don't get what it is, right? We're like, hey, we can't get mortgages and uh, wage stagnation has has existed for like 50 years. Wages have not grown at all in real terms. Um, and there, there seems to be this generational disconnect. And I think you see this displayed in this film most stridently um, kind of as a fallout of the economic woes that actually did hit Japan and that are then sort of narrativized with the, uh, you know, the 15% unemployment problems and things like that, which, um, which, which are pretty historically accurate, or at least they're kind of like, I don't know, narratival analogs of, of historical truths. You know, you said something interesting about how these days you can see a similar thing happening between uh, American millennials and their parents and grandparents. And this brings me to say something that I think is going to be a little bit controversial. But I think one of the biggest tragedies of the Hunger Games kind of basically just like aping this idea is that Battle Royale won't be remade in American cinema. And I actually kind of wish it would be. Because to Austin's point earlier, when you're talking about a foreign movie, there's always going to be things that you don't quite pick up on. And for a movie that functions so much on the level of we're taking Japanese school customs and putting it in like a, a death battle scenario, I feel like I'm always missing out on so much simply because I just never went to school in Japan. I don't know what Japanese cliques are like. If this were clueless, you know, in a battle arena... I would love to see an Americanized version of that, especially with like, you know, in the in the age of Instagram and all that stuff. You, you right. know what? Uh, it's it's not the exact same, but uh, but uh, there's a few th through lines that are similar Is Starship Troopers kind of has some remnants because, you know, it's very heavy on the teenage universal teenage soap opera, basically. But in this mm. these dire death battle circumstances. Which to me, yeah, I what I like about the movie way more is just the teen drama stuff way more than the thinking about the social, you know, part about it. Even though that's always yeah. in the background, but w w what is interesting about this movie, I also kind of say it's another small gripe is that but even though this movie is perfect as it is, but uh, <laughs> but the, the the fact that they literally don't talk about. You know, this whole thing's supposed to be a deterrent effect, right? The fact that the BR Act happens, right? In, in I sense. wasn't even going to bring this up, and, but you're right. And and when they say, "Hey, have you all heard about the BR Act?" No, no kid says, "Oh no, that's what we're in." Ah! Right. So therefore, how does it even it's work? Like, it's exactly. It's like the uh, how does it work? How is it actually being a deterrent? It seems like it is just kind of this sick. Well, we're going to punish the kids, and because they do have that one important scene at the beginning where it's all the news media around the last winter. Right. You know, they're like, oh, right. my God, this is the winner of this year. You know, so you're supposed to kind of say, well, this is the effect every year that it happens. Right. It know? becomes a media spectacle. It becomes a media spectacle where Hunger Games, that's all it's about is the media spectacle. But, yeah, it's interesting that they kind of made that choice to really downplay that in this movie. They don't talk. They don't really have much of that at all besides that scene. Yeah. No, so this was also – I'm glad you brought this up, Ryan, because this was a point of confusion for me. And maybe it's because I had seen The Hunger Games and I had read The Lottery when I was in school. So I understood kind of 
how or, or like the purge kind of does something similar in that there's like this social thing where there's a sacrifice that is done to quell some sort of potential rebellion or whatever, right? And they didn't focus on that, and I kind of thought that that made it a little bit less impactful. Because again, like you're saying, it it was like, okay, so then what's the efficacy of this ritual if nobody knows about it, if it doesn't reach outside of this sort of contained closed system, system right? It, it made the act less impactful, but but still, you're. I mean, it's all the focus is supposed to be on the kids being in that situation, and you know, and less focus on the the act. But you're right in terms of what are we supposed to be getting from this whole situation? You know, yeah. What are we yeah, supposed yeah. to take from it? Yeah, I mean, it's also interesting too. Kind of, I mean, not to not to kind of like completely shift gears because I think it's kind of related to it. But the idea that because you were saying you like the idea that it focuses on like the uh, the teen drama uh, of everything, and one of the fallouts of the Japanese uh, kind of crash in the '90s was that the school system got really affected negatively. And one of the ways that it got really affected was that there was like a real cutthroat competition. And this is just from doing like. 10 minutes of, of reading online prior to kind of jumping on here um, was that okay. apparently the education system in Japan got uh, got really uh, affected. And so the competition that you see, this kind of like radical cutthroat individual uh, person versus person is a sort of radical dramatization of what took place in the actual school systems themselves. I mean, I guess kids were dropping out like crazy. And then, um, you know, there's the one kid that says something. He said, I can't remember what he says, but it's something like, I'm going to kill you and I'm going to survive and I'm going to go to a really good school or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, that yeah. was another thing. Yeah, is that like uh, these, cosine. The, yeah. these kids have these huge pressures on them to all be careerists and stuff, which is also a right. very new thing culturally. Exactly. And then if you're if you've got that much pressure on you, but you don't have any job prospects then there's a strange tension that you have to deal with. So I'm going to read something from uh, a scholarly article, I think originally uh, showed up in film comment. This is from a piece called From Hollywood to Tokyo, Resolving Attention in Contemporary Narrative Cinema by Robert Davis and Ricardo de los Rios. Uh, this is actually just a piece of background about this movie. It says, uh, Fukasaku's film mischievously wears this uh, R15 rating as a badge of honor, trumpeting it in front of its credits as a blood-red title card says, R15, no one under 15 allowed, to an audience who is presumably already passed or perhaps even eluded the theater's security. Despite its restrictive rating, and perhaps partly because even Japan's Liberal Democratic Party's leaders condemned it as antisocial, Battle Royale was, after it opened in Tokyo on December 16, 2000, the top-grossing Japanese-language film for six weeks in a row. This movie was a huge hit with young people. <laughs> as it should be. And I'm curious, and is it was the rallying cry that young people felt? Was it like, "Hey, look, this is our con this is our real condition. We're just pitted against each other, and we have these, you know, traditional overlords who are basically putting us through this schooling system and make us hate each other because everything is so competitive and we don't really have any hope." Is that do we think that that's the message I'm that really gonna, resonated? I'm with gonna them? guess that the it was sim as simple as, "Holy shit! Did you see that? Fuck! I heard about this really fucked up." You know, bloody kid movie. Like, In Japan, let's go see it. This is the home of J horror, man. They have fucked up, you know, bloody shit all the time. Yeah, but this is. Oh, you're right. I guess they are more sensitized. But uh, but this is no. I think more that so like for others. kids, I think it was just that. Wow, I'm seeing my high school experience, a deranged version of my high school experience. Yeah. on the big screen, and I yeah, think I that. Can see that. Yeah, and I think that there's almost like a catharsis in that, oh, this is like kind of the real backstabbing at the heart of my experience that I'm seeing projected on screen. Well, that's why the director had his son come in to write part of the script, right? Was because oh, I didn't know that. He's an, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, so he's, he's an older dude, uh, and he was like, I can write the older part, but I'm going to have my son come in and help write the... Uh, the, the other part, so that, and he was only, so the son's name is Kenta Fukasaku, and he was born in 72, so you're looking like he's in his 20s when this film is being made, so he kind of lived through the this lost decade as a as a school child himself. So oh, he was able to have more of a connection. It was a father-son project. Just like Gravity. Yeah, it was just a simple father-son <laughs> pro project. That's, that's uh, it's cute. sweet. Let's make a yeah. film about a bunch of kids murder each other. <laughs> Well, and, and speaking of that, have you guys seen Battle Royale 2? 
There's actually a third one, but no, I haven't seen any of the sequels. Yeah, it's 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 rough, man. It's 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 crazy. I mean, they really he they remade the movie, but like tried to make it more like a a, a literal war movie. It's like Saving Private Ryan meets Battle Royale. Huh. Yeah. And you never saw the third one? No, I, I actually didn't know that existed. That's like Tetsuo the Iron Man. The first one's amazing. The second two just get worse and worse. It's like Human Centipede. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. No, but, but this is also something that's really tough, too. If you've got a film that strikes while the iron is hot, so to speak, right? Like it's it's being written at the tail end of something that is such a poignant cultural event and that can resonate with audiences all around the world because we understand what it's like to have generational strife. We understand teen dramas. We understand romance and kind of like the the, the lover that you never got to articulate it to. We understand friendship and betrayal and being placed in a situation of distress. It tickles the imagination and there are all these amazing themes, right? But when you try to reproduce that, but it doesn't have the same urgency or it doesn't have the same connection yeah. to historical or material reality or something like that. It's hard to repeat that success, you know? You can't get that lightning in the bottle twice. I want to spend a second talking about the legacy of this movie. Okay. Um, so you guys know what PUBG and Fortnite are. The, I mean, I know I'm a I gamer. Fortnite, yeah. Yeah, I'm a gamer. I'm not a multiplayer gamer. These are like the biggest games in the world, but it's even if somebody tries to explain the concept to you, they will use Battle Royale because basically these games are, you know, you're on an island and it's like, a, you know, only one person survives kind of thing. Um, I don't know. I, I just it's just interesting how, at least in my circles, I'm curious to what how you guys have heard Fortnite described. But I hear it's, you know, Battle Royale plus blank or something like that, more so than the Hunger Games. Which I mean, is like, so is it, interesting. Is it like Halo, like when and it, with Xbox Live, because I haven't played Fortnite, but I used to play Xbox Live Halo all the time. And when yeah, you, you could would say go it's on... it's something similar like that. It's a bit more comedically driven, but basically, it's it's Halo, but in more of a Hunger Games setting. I'm, I might be getting this completely wrong. I feel like probably such a noob for Fortnite players out there. Okay, so Chase, our audio engineer, just said it's like an 18 battle with Halo, but Epic Team. Oh, Epic Team on Halo. Okay, cool. Yeah. Oh, I, I, yeah. I feel like that was my jam. I love that shit. Do you think it would be too crazy for me to say that if this movie didn't exist, perhaps these games wouldn't exist? Yeah, it's too crazy. Too crazy? <laughs> <laughs> uh, probably because, I mean, I played Halo right around the time that this movie came out, right? Yeah. And, and it had those game modes. And, I mean... Last it's, Man Standing it's still, is just it's, a, a It's structure. still a cultural artifact to yeah. explain these things, though. I mean, and then this is based off, like, Lord of the Flies and shit like that kind of deals with something like this. I mean, it's not like yeah. this story is that original, right? I mean, it's original, and it's unique to a particular historical context and culture, et cetera, et cetera. But, I mean, the idea of kids alone. Right, but, 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 Logan's Run. But Lord of the Flies wasn't a game. This is gamified Logan's for a society a to watch. Yeah, Logan's Run is probably a better example, sure. Yeah. All right, so one more other thing, I want, one fun thing I want to talk about is um, I'm always thinking about how movies kind of claim a piece of music. So, for example, there's a part where Strauss's On the Blue Danube is playing over shots yeah. of the military leading up to Katano's second report. And Katano, once again, is it's silly to see a guy in a tracksuit watching over these sweeping military shots. I can't listen to that song without thinking of 2001 A Space Odyssey. And because of that context, it's all the funnier when I'm seeing dude in a tracksuit <laughs> with this, like, you know, seemingly grandiose military operation. And, you know, whereas in 2001, the context is like, look at the marvels of man. Look how far we've come from the just, you know, using a bone to whack things. <laughs> right. I don't know. Like, do you guys ever feel that? Like, when you ever hear a piece of music, like, it's just, oh, that's been claimed by 2001. Like, if I hear Shostakovich, I can't help but think of Eyes Wide Shut. Maybe it's just Kubrick. I don't it, know. Isn't that one also, like, in, like, Fantasia and stuff, though? It might be. We're talking yeah. about dun, 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 that exactly. one, Exactly, right? yes. All right. Yeah, I feel like that's in like like it's like, in like so many things. Yeah, Mickey Mouse cartoons. Sure, and stuff. sure. Yeah, I mean it's it's everywhere. But I don't know. It's ubiquitous. Was that was that report scene funnier to you guys than other ones? It was for me. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I I like the juxtaposition of the song, and I mean, I definitely knew that they were going for humor right when it happened. So it was an effective choice, I think. Yeah. See, I feel like I have a 
a vague memory of that song being used in like some sort of shitty SpaghettiOs commercial or something like that. <laughs> I mean, it's free. It's I- everywhere, man. <laughs> it's royalty-free music. So- <laughs> I'm sure it's everywhere. Yeah, so it's kind of got that. Um, God, it, it's just very. Uh, it's very jovial whenever I hear it. So it almost it, it is that juxtaposition, right? Of this kind of like military thing. This dude in his trackies. And then this SpaghettiOs commercial song comes on or whatever the fuck it is. So, I, I mean, I was actually surprised at how much humor was in this film. And I was—I actually watched it in my office and I found myself just like laughing out loud and then kind of like making sure I wasn't disturbing anybody else. Because I was like, oh shit, I'm literally laughing out loud right now at this movie. Because it was kind of ridiculous at times. And that scene is one of those ridiculous scenes. Absolutely. And there's scenes where you're totally like, I'm not supposed to be laughing because right. these kids are being tortured like to <laughs> right. their death in front of me. But damn, this is funny as hell. Like, yeah. Well, it, like, I never it, felt like I wasn't supposed to be laughing, but I always knew that, oh, this is super macabre. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah. What film was it where we talked about this? God, I, my, I've killed too many brain cells, apparently. But where was we it talked about like like John Wick, sort of. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I was John Wick. Yeah. Where we laughed at the absurdity of the violence almost right. or the absurdity of the situation. And sometimes I feel like uh, the philosopher Gilles Deleuze has this wonderful quote that I just fucking love so much. He says, one can't help but laugh when the codes are confounded. And I love that idea. Like when the codes of life, when the norms of society, when when the things that we're supposed to do or think or feel get confounded somehow, it is makes you laugh because it's like ridiculous Like because the codes aren't supposed to be confounded. And so in some ways that that's kind of a bedrock of where humor comes from. So are, is Battle Royale 2 or 3 funny? Yeah, I only saw two. And yeah, there's there's definitely, the, the, you know, the, 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 the famous funny scene where they explain this whole thing and they yeah, wake yeah. up. I mean, we that's haven't talked, about, we haven't oh, talked yeah. about that scene Let's at all. Talk, yeah, that I mean, that scene amazing. is amazing just with the, you know, rolling up the VHS player right. that's in front of the classroom and, you know. Uh, hey, no, it's like, no whispering. <laughs> and then, yeah. Like, hits her with a knife in the head. And then, like, Takeshi Kitano is the only one, like, clapping along with the video. Yeah. Like, arigato. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, they she's redo got kind of the... like this Laura Croft, Laura Croft thing going on with the, the gun on the her video. hip. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And she's just so jovial with right. how she's explaining about the conditions upon which these kids will die. That was I know, the I totally, I actually totally fell in love with her, too, during that scene. I was like, man, I know that she's literally issuing a death knell right now, but I love her. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that was the moment where I I begin to fall in love with the movie, is you're like, what? <laughs> that's you the know? funniest part of the movie yeah. for me. Like, Absolutely. And I think that's what pe- most people remember is that classroom scene. Absolutely. And they redo mm. it, like, verbatim in the second one is Takeshi Kitano in it god I don't think so he, he's uh, in the second one only in a flashback okay yeah. okay but yeah they it's like the same scene and you're like wait this is like you're just redoing it it's like pretty weird mm. yeah so there is comedy though anyway all right, so let's go on to what our strategies would be yes. for the battle royale uh, all right let's start with Ryan well, like I said, if I was really playing it, I'd kill myself. After really, hang, you after wouldn't even try. Out. Well, no, I'd hang out all day, but you know, like, <laughs> like I, but hang out with my buddies, but be like, look, you know, I'm not gonna go kill everyone, you know, like, fuck those guys. But you if know? you're gonna die, I mean, the worst case scenario is you die. Your friends are gonna die anyway. You wouldn't even just try, or is like you're murdering li- your friends. So life after murdering your friends just isn't worth living. Yeah, and it's just kind of like the point, the principle of it, you know. Like, like anyway. My, but if I was gonna win, which I would, uh, uh, <laughs> like I said, like so, so when I in laser tag, you know, which I'm really good at, you mm-hmm. know, you, the, the 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 way you win laser tag is you don't really hide, right? You just go out in the middle and you start shooting everybody and everything, and you get more <laughs> points by doing that than right. if you spend any time hiding. Yeah, you but know? but this isn't about getting points. A bullet to the head. You well, no, die. I'm, not, I'm saying I wouldn't do that here. You know, um, you can't do that. <laughs> I would definitely. Um, I would fucking at the beginning hide until basically halfway through the second day or so, you know, and then really start uh, doing some just gr- straight up guerrilla warfare stuff. You know, like sneaking around and being as sneaky as possible. I, I wish I had more time to think about what my real, you know, any other strategy. It all, like you said, it would depend on what your weapon. Yeah, would it be. depends on the weapon. It has to. Well, yeah, but but if you get a shitty weapon, then all you have to do is just get a good weapon, right? So I'm then that's it, your number one. That's your number one plan. So you I start off with hole. the fucking. 
tracking device, and then your next step is, okay, I got a tracking device. How can I use this to get the machine Let's gun? Let's all assume we're starting out with a pot lid, all right? I mean, I'm oh, going to be killing people yeah, to you know, get that's a weird, weapon Why did the up? pot lid not come back and be relevant? It was. It was it relevant. Was? Yeah, because because he's sitting there with a pot lid, and then the guy comes up from behind him and he with an axe, and then he holds oh, up the pot lid. but that was immediately. That's, and that, but that's when it became relevant. That's all I'm saying. Okay. I guess I'm just it saying that it would, be better life, if it, it would be better if we forgot about the pot lid, and then sometime in like the end of the second act, or the third act, it became. Listen, this is the greatest relevant. movie ever made, according to Ryan. So don't be trying to poke <laughs> holes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> one yeah. of them. One of them. What do you guys think is the the most the most useful weapon? Um, machine gun. <laughs> definitely the machine gun, but the tracker. The tracker is, is, is second. Good. Is second most because yeah, if you can see everyone's numbers walking around, that is exactly what you need. But the the machine yeah. gun would be probably the most uh, uh, effective because honestly, I can see. I can't imagine how many winners of this there actually are because three days, you can't like 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 most kids are are going to be hiding so well that that uh, uh you're not going to find them all you know they're not going to be playing this game yeah that's the question is how many people would be motivated to play it like would Very they few. just be hiding yeah yeah, and if they're hiding and you don't kill them, then everybody dies. So you're in a bit of a dilemma because you can't just sit back like with, with your back against the wall and a machine gun. You have out to start killing at some off. point. Yeah, you have to hunt. You have to go out and hunt, and then that means yeah. you expose yourself. Uh, Fuck, uh, Austin, what's your what's your strategy? Yeah, what's dude? the game plan? I mean, I mean, okay, like what's first the strategy, comrade? First, I think you gotta you gotta band together with as many people as you can to figure out how to somehow circumvent the system. Like that's it. You just get as many people together. You get the nerds. You get the the tough people, and you figure out we're not gonna die. We're gonna survive. And you come together and you figure out how to overcome. So the how system. do you approach those people exactly inside a battle royale? <laughs> well, first of all, you're already homies, right? Because you're school you're schoolmates. So. Okay. Uh, you find you find your tightest alliances first. So I'm thinking like my best friends when I was in high school. It's me, Tristan, my homie Sean, Stan. Those guys were were immediately ride or die motherfuckers, right? So I know they're on my side already. So I got them. Plus, Tristan and Stan are crazy motherfuckers. So I already feel confident that I got these two crazy motherfuckers who if I need them to just go crazy and start killing people, that's great. Uh, uh, Sean, he has a PhD now in geology, so he's a scientist. So I got him on my side. I know he's going to help with strategy. Uh, I don't know what I bring to the table, but that's okay. Uh, maybe but I'm the wild is, this card. This is pre-PhD. This is what? This is pre-PhD. This is pre-PhD. This is high school. Yeah, this is high school, but it doesn't matter. Those those germs, the germinations are there, you know, in these people. So I under I understand who they are and what their strengths are. So first things first is you build an alliance with them. And then you know that there are girls that have a crush on Stan because Stan is a beautiful <laughs> motherfucker. So, hey, you get those girls that come on over and you're like, hey, you got it. You want I know you want to be with Stan because after the game ends, you want to hook up with them. So you got to be on our side. So then you start recruiting. And then at that point, you've got six or seven people. And then you see other people that want to come in. So you have this network that you slowly start to build. So that's how you you start with your tightest bonds. You build out from there. And then you uh, you figure it out, man. You figure out how to circumvent the game. And they did. Actually, they beat the game in this uh, movie. Uh, you, you, you know, I think the real the real strategy is just to try and convince everybody that you're some sort of religious prophet that will get everybody <laughs> to ascend off of the island together. And, yeah, good luck. You know, and then basically you just tra okay, no. create this cult, and then no. uh, you know, basically instead of drinking the Kool Aid, we all just have our necklaces explode on the third. Well, my uh, my answer was going to go. My plan was going to go off your plan. I'd get uh, because you know I'm committed to winning this game, right? So I say, okay, guys, my best buddies, everyone, come over here. Like like let's meet over here at this barn. You know, we got like like we got to band together, strong. Let's do it. You know, get your weapons, and we'll be more powerful that way. Get all my best friends, get all the girlfriends, get everybody, get them together, get the machine gun, shoot all my best friends and their girlfriends, take all their <laughs> weapons, all of a sudden. And I have a stockpile of weapons. I'm saying, and then I say, over, protect the stockpile over their weapons? dead bodies. I say, guys, sorry, I had to do it, but I'm going to win this game. I'm committed. Uh, and then I'm going to take all your weapons and then I'm going to, uh, you know, use that to kill everyone. Hopefully the tracker was in there. And there you go, baby. Winner. Yeah, precisely. This is, this is game. I feel, like, I feel like that would, is... that would go with a couple, there'd be a couple hiccups in that plan. How? <laughs> I, all it has, it's the foolproof, only, man. The only How? hiccup is getting that machine gun and hopefully it's my friend. Yeah. Austin, I'm sure nobody your... else is thinking that, by the way. Yeah, right. No, no one will. <laughs> all right, I mean, Austin, listen, what's are, the real all good... answer? 
These are all good plans, but the real answer is what you do is you start a sex cult because you're going to die anyway. On the island? Thank you. Yeah, so you just say, fuck it. Let's just all bang because we're going to die anyway. So let's just enjoy three days of radical hedonistic pleasure or or maybe two and a half days of hedonistic pleasure and then the half day of strategizing to figure out how to get off the island. That's actually good. I I totally am on board with this because – I feel like a lot of people. Because at that be point, I'd just down. be like, "Man, you know, I've just banged like everybody. You know, I, I'm cool with dying, man. I've already experienced the heights of pleasure. And if you get killed during the orgy, you're like, well, whatever. Well, like, then, then that's the ultimate pleasure. <laughs> right. Yeah, whatever, uh, man. What What I was gonna say is that there is something interesting to think. They're like very innocently portrayed, right? Yeah. Like, but I think except that's for part the fact of the that they comedy, kill each right? other. Yeah. But like in terms of like their, there's like a real innocence about well, some them. Of like, them are I just evil. Like I, I have a crush on this person, or I just want to go to a good school, or whatever. They're, they're, I don't know. So I was wondering, they're not like sixteen, because I feel like the thing with the Hunger Games is there's a little bit more of an edge to some of the dudes that are in that, right? Like the one blonde big fucker. I don't know. He had, he had well, more. We, we, I mean, we, I guess we, the crazy. There's yeah, we got the crazy dude, dude like the the transfer student, yeah. or well, at least well, the transfer yeah, student yeah. that isn't the one that. Well, helps, and then though. the psycho bitch, you know that 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 was. Oh, Mitsuko. Bullied. Yeah, I like her. She's my favorite. Yeah, she the was, one. She was awesome. The one who we find out was sold by her mother to a child oh, molester. Oh, dude, that scene is yeah, yeah fuck. Wow. Oh, you know, yeah, she's you know she's as good. fucked up as that scene is. It's amazing how they convey a, like a lot of information. You know, we see a mother passed out, drunk, dollar bills yeah. like around her, and then we see you know like him holding the doll and saying, "Oh, sh- this is also Mitsuko." Like, and you just know it's happening and. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, uh, it's fucked up, but it's efficient. We've all seen the headlines in the news of how someone lost her life in an act of cold-blooded murder. And while it's sad and grabs your attention, most people go on with their day without giving it another thought. But have you ever stopped to think about the life of the person at the center of the news story? They were more than just a headline or a statistic. They were someone's loved one or friend. I'm Mike Morford, and my podcast, The Murder of My Family, dives into some of those stories to help listeners get to know the person who was lost and how their death affected those closest to them. Listen to The Murder of My Family everywhere you listen to podcasts there are well over 100 episodes to binge on now all right let's move into the mailbag so we got some great uh emails about the incredibles too so this one is from busy dad living he says i finally saw incredibles 2 over the weekend so i came back to listen to your podcast in your discussion of winston and his naivete in believing in heroes whether you think it's about strongman or god or whenever it makes winston a better person when his sister reveals her plan to him and tries to take him he doesn't stay docile he jumps out of a helicopter and goes to save the people who had been taken prisoner evelyn's argument was that belief in superheroes made her dad docile but it makes her brother active and heroic what do you guys think about that yeah you know it's interesting we i i had this thought when we were recording when we were recording last week that we remember we were talking about like a little boy on a diving board or something like that and i was thinking oh you know what he might do also is or maybe we didn't talk about that and I just made this whole scenario up in my mind. But anyway, the point is is if you're like a little boy and you're on a diving board and you're afraid, you know, you're on the three meter board and it looks high, you might remember in your mind Batman jumping off of this thing and making this awesome landing, and then that might inspire you to like jump into the pool. So I can see why sometimes the superhero idea can actually motivate. And and I, I had that thought sometimes. Cool. Uh yeah, so I think this is interesting. Um, I did not think about that. You know, this is what happens when I see a movie in the theater and I don't really get a chance to pause and take notes and stuff. But yeah, I appreciate that. It makes me like the movie a lot more knowing that Brad Bird was like, you know, very meticulously balanced with his uh, his criticism there. So, all right, this next email is from J.P. Barrett, and he is responding to something that Greg brought up on the last podcast. And uh, Greg asked, does he think that kids get the deeper message? And he says, J.P. says, I think so. Maybe not as much as they do later when they're adults. But he says, ask a boomer who watched Rocky and Bullwinkle if they got the politically subversive jabs and authority as a child, and ask a millennial if they got those same ideas from Animaniacs or Tiny Toons. Not as much then, but they really see it later as adults. Pixar films are made for adults to enjoy with their kids. They play on two levels on purpose and usually succeed, except Cars 2. A very savvy parent will use them to lead kids into deeper discussions, but everyone will have a good time no matter what. You know, not having kids, and I don't have any, like, younger cousins that I see a lot, um, I don't really, yeah, I never really thought about that, like, using the movie as a lens to uh, engage with these conversations with younger people, but I think that's so that's super cool. 
to the Rocky and Bullwinkle point, yeah, have you watched Rocky and Bullwinkle anytime recently? Not <laughs> There's recently. so many things where it's just what like, is the whole the subversive message? I don't. I don't well, know. I'm, I don't remember. Well, I mean, the, 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 there's there's a million jokes in Rocky and Bullwinkle. They're famous for you know every second there's a there's a pun or something. But then some of them are just more you know you would only get it if you were above fifteen. Isn't Snidely, Snidely Whiplash? That's the bad guy, right? Isn't he just like a shrewd capitalist or something? He, I mean, him. He's just a bad guy. That's just. Uh, 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 are you talking about the guys the the, the bad Ivanka bi- and whatever? Am I thinking of the, the wrong the, villain? The Russians that... Yeah. Oh, are they Russian? Yeah. I don't know much about Rocky and Bullwinkle. I haven't seen it since I was like probably a toddler. Yeah, but I yeah. remember my stepmom used to give me a really hard time when I was younger with music that I would listen to or things that I would watch, and I would say, I don't really pay attention to the lyrics, and she said, but that the messages will seep in there anyway. And I I, yeah. I believe my mom now, was the actually, same way. She was probably right more than I w- wanted to admit at the time. But I, I'm curious. I wonder, like, to what extent does does that ideology shape who we are and how we how we think about things? I don't know if we can even articulate oftentimes those subversive messages, but I wonder how much it just, like, shapes how we think and how we feel and how we behave and how we comport to the world. Like, like I said last week, too, like, you know, how some people manufacture their bullshit drama lives because they watch the Kardashians or Love Island or The Bachelor and they want to, like, manufacture that shit in their own lives. Um... Yeah, I wonder how much do like watching Animaniacs or Pinky and the Brain or fucking DuckTales or whatever, how much did were the messages that were in that that were clearly written by adults who have political and social opinions who can't avoid putting those things into their scripts. I wonder how much that actually does seep in. I don't know. I remember a couple of years ago, Ryan and I watched some episode of Donald Duck and we couldn't believe how raw it was. Yeah. Like the whole episode was about how much Donald Duck hates going home to his wife. <laughs> and he just dreads, you know, go, he right. dreads going, leaving the office to be back at his nagging wife. And we were just like, kids are supposed to watch this? This is like the most miserable thing I've seen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's actually really fucking hilarious. Yeah. I want to see that now so bad. It's so funny. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, All right, so this last email is from Greg. Not our Greg, a different Greg. Um, And this is a very thoughtful email. I'm going to try to get through the whole thing. So he says, "Um, I think John Kingdon's multiple streams framework is a separate way to think about the plot of The Incredibles 2, and one that is still related to your point about mediated images. The multiple streams framework is a political science theory that attempts to describe how public policy decisions are made, at least in the U.S. In short, there are there are three streams, the problem stream, the policy stream and the political stream. The they are as follows. The problem stream is filled with perceptions of problems that are seen as public in the sense that government action is needed to resolve them. These problems usually reach the awareness of policymakers because of the dramatic events such as crises or through feedback from existing programs that attract public attention. People come to view a situation as a problem based on its variance with their understanding of some desired state of affairs. The policy stream is filled with the output of experts and analysts who examine problems and propose solutions. In this stream, the myriad possibilities for policy action and inaction are identified, assessed, and narrowed down to a subset of ostensibly feasible options. Finally, the political stream comes... Finally, the political stream comprises factors that influence the body politic, such as swings in national mood, executive or legislative turnover, and interest group advocacy groups. The film closely follows these three streams. The video cameras are designed to influence the problem in political streams, and the attack on the ambassador is designed by Evelyn to influence the policy stream. The unease towards Winston and Evelyn is probably also a reaction against policy entrepreneurs and their efforts to influence the policy stream and force open the action window. The multiple streams framework also explains why the viewer had such a reaction when Violet's quip at the end of the movie. Once the policy window opens, which coincides with the film's climax, Winston and Evelyn seek opposing policy solutions legalization versus further prohibition. After the supers save the day, the policy window closes with the legalization of supers. Violet's point is that the policy window's opening was wasted because no action was taken to improve the broader criminal justice system. Anyway, just some philosophy-adjacent theorizing for you. Keep hitting those home runs, Greg. Thank you, Greg, for that very well-thought-out email. I don't really know much about public policy, but it seems really interesting. Yeah, um, I only know about this in the fact that it's one of the most cited theories for policy formation in political theory studies, and it's oftentimes discussed alongside something called the Overton Window. Are you guys familiar with the term the Overton Window? I've heard of it. I've heard of it. 
it basically is the window uh, that that kind of dictates what is allowed to be discussed within public political discourse. Ah, so there yes. are things that exist outside the window, and then the things that exist like right in the sweet spot in the window are the things that get put into public policy. So yeah, this is not my wheelhouse. I'm not a like a political scientist, but um, yeah, it, that is an interesting take kind of when you look at this film in relation to how it is that public policy can get formed, how it is that uh, these agendas uh, seep through these varying different levels of um, of the political system or the socio-political political system. Um, and I didn't think about that when I was watching the film, and it kind of makes – I mean I feel like this film is one of those ones that is going to be a really, a, a really fun revisit in a few years that we're going to be able to go back and keep sucking stuff out of because my mind has just been so immersed in Baudrillard lately. So it was fun that, that we kind of got to talk at that or talk at that level, but it would be really interesting to look at this more as a sort of, um, as a political economist, which is where my research is heading more nowadays, but political economy or political theory or political science. Cause there's some interesting shit going on there. Yeah. I can't wait to see it again. Anyway, going to go ahead and wrap it up guys. Just a reminder, if you would like to send us comments as well, hit us up at movies at wisecrack.co. Also, if you'd like to join us on Patreon, check out wisecrackplus.com. And if you have a second, please do remember to leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps us out, and we would very much appreciate it. But before we go, where can we find you guys on the internet? Ryan. Um, I make funny comedy videos every week that I post on YouTube and Facebook on Ryan's Shorts. You can check them out, or you can find the, the, the ramen-based game show that I make in my garage called Ryan's Game Show. What about you, Austin? Uh, you can hit me up on Twitter if you want, Austin underscore Hayden. I do a philosophy podcast with a buddy of mine that actually Jared came on a few weeks ago, and we talked about uh, philosophy and death of God and doing philosophy for a popular audience. It's called Owls at Dawn, and our most recent episode, we tackle a very sensitive issue, the hashtag MeToo movement, with a public intellectual by the name of Heidi Matthews, who has written quite extensively on it. So you can check it out on iTunes. God died? Yeah, God died. We're basically living an extended version of Weekend at Bernie's. Oh yeah, love that movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was it was a fun episode to sit around and chat with them. So, um, and then this week's episode, we're tackling uh, the Me Too hashtag Me Too movement and sexual consent and things like that. Woo! So, uh, check you the are, you are a bold out. man. It's called sir. Owls at Owls at Dawn. You can find us on iTunes or Owls at Dawn.com or just Google it. Cool. All right. Well, that's gonna do it. Thank you guys so much for watching. And by the way, next week we are doing David Lynch's directorial debut. Eraserhead. Yay! So check out Eraserhead next week. Until then, see you later. Goodbye from Hollywood, California. Laters. <laughs>